Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Just before we start today's show, uh, Mid-Atlantic listeners, I'd like to implore you to go over to our new youtube channel yes you've heard it we finally are putting our shows up on youtube quite simply go to youtube search for mid-atlantic podcast to subscribe to our channel it's incredibly important that you do so for the sake of the algorithm some jiggery poke which i don't quite understand but you can watch all the episodes there and please for the love of all things holy please subscribe to the channel because it really will help me out now plus for an exclusive experience visit royfield.com and sign up to our newsletter now this will give you access to the live podcast recordings on zoom where if you are in the audience you can engage and ask questions with our expert guests so join us on this journey of exploration and understanding of the world of politics in the us in the uk and globally subscribe and sign up today This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. The United Kingdom is a great country. Never, never been a good bet to bet against America. Hi, hello and welcome. I'm Royful Brown and I'm in Birmingham. You are listening to Mid-Atlantic. This is the podcast which is dedicated to fostering dialogue between the US and the UK by delving into the political climate of both countries. In this episode, however, we're going to switch our focus solely onto the US of A. Joining me today is our distinguished panel. We have Z Cohen Sanchez from Arizona, Logan Phillips from Washington, D.C., but believes in Connecticut because it's the holiday season. Denise Hamilton, she hails from Houston in Texas, and Aaron Fisher is from the Bay Area. Our discussion today will focus around Colorado's exclusion from Trump from its primary ballot and the peculiar scenario of Biden's economic achievements, which seem to be flying underneath the radar. In 2023, the US economy remarkably avoided the predicted recession, demonstrating significant growth and economic progress. This expansion has been fueled by strong consumer spending, supported by a stable job market, increasing wages, and notable progress for women and black workers. These trends highlight the beneficial effects of the Biden Harris administration's investment in key areas. However, a recent study from a leading Democratic study group indicates that to succeed in the 2024 economic debate, 
President Joe Biden and the Democrats must fundamentally change their economic communication strategy. Even with these positive economic indicators, a substantial number of voters continue to have no confidence in the Democrats' ability to manage the economy and to tackle inflation issues. There is good news on the economy overall, but public perception isn't as hot as the markets. CBS's Michael George is on Wall Street with more. Michael? Adriana, good evening. There's lots of encouraging signs about this economy. Inflation is slowing and gas prices are the lowest they've been in years. But still, half of Americans say the economy is poor. And there's some important reasons why. For many families, the holidays are the most expensive time of the year. And high prices are squeezing budgets even more. I budgeted knowing that Christmas comes the same time every year and that inflation was still going to be high. But inflation is falling in a big way, down from 9.1% last June to 3.1% this November. Also dropping mortgage rates, unemployment, and gas prices. On average, gas is $3.07 a gallon nationwide. The recession, some feared was imminent, hasn't happened. The U.S. economy has really defied all expectations. Bankrate.com's chief financial analyst, Greg McBride, explains why not everyone is feeling optimistic. If we have all these indicators that the economy is strong, why might some Americans not be feeling that? People aren't feeling it because prices are a lot higher than they were two or three years ago. The cost of food, for example, hasn't dropped back to pre-pandemic levels. And this week, the Fed kept interest rates steady but indicated they may make cuts next year, which could give some relief to consumers slammed by the cost of mortgages and credit card debt. Before we go into this, Logan, have you got any polling for us? Let's start there. What do the American people think and feel about their economic situation right now? Yeah, there's definitely a big gap between what Americans feel is going on in their own economic situation and what they feel about as the country at large. But they're pretty pessimistic about the economy. Now, part of this is there's some underlying issues where even though that we've seen some growth in the economy on things like housing, some other essential goods, Americans aren't doing as well relative to their paychecks still. Partly because housing costs have gone out of control in the U.S. The demand is higher than the supply, and we haven't really given this a boost since the 90s in terms of expanding affordable housing on a sizable level. That's really a drag. And also, it's just like it's a, inflation is unique. That's one of the hardest things you can deal with as a politician. It's uh, an incumbent killer. And so people are still seeing these prices, even though the rate of increase is still, it has gone down a lot. Every time you're at the grocery store or buying something that's important that maybe you haven't seen in six months, but now you see it's a little higher, there's that extra frustration. Even though the U.S. is doing a lot better on the inflation index than most countries, it's just not something Americans are used to having at this high level, um, especially after years of such high levels of deflation. So I think they're holding, they're looking at things in a harsh light for Biden on that account. Do we have any figures on the confidence that the American public actually have with the Republicans and the Democrats when it comes to the issue of the economy. Although traditionally, Americans have always lent to the Republicans in terms of economic surety. Yes, I don't have the numbers offhand right now, but I will say that Donald Trump, sometimes in certain areas, Americans will give certain politicians the benefit of the doubt. Um, President Obama, when they were down on the economy, he did a really good job of making the case that he cared. 
Um, and so they'd give him a little more room on that. Even how he was able to beat Mitt Romney in 2012, even though they viewed Romney as overall stronger than the economy. For Trump, he gets the benefit of the doubt on the economy to a huge degree when he was president, especially during the Great Recession, because they viewed him as a successful businessman and thought it was a strength of his, even when the conditions weren't as good. Joe Biden seems to have it in the other direction, pretty harsh on him. And so that's an area Republicans win. Now, that's not an area you want to lose, be losing and going into election debt. That being said, ahistorically, but nonetheless consistently since 2012, Democrats have done a lot better than the who is better in the economy numbers would suggest, which is normally what people vote on. Again, Obama won despite losing on that, partly because he convinced people that he cared more, which always helps Dems when they have that case. In 2018, Democrats were doing okay on that issue. They won in the landslide anyway. In 2020, Joe Biden was outright losing on that issue, and he won anyway. In 2022, Democrats did lose, but they were doing a lot worse on the economy, like landslide terrible. And they had the best midterm for a party in power since 2002 and the third best since the 1970s. So to a degree, because Democrats are winning on other issues, they can survive not doing great on the economy, but it's still not going to help them. Now, if they can win the economic issue, Joe Biden's very likely to win re-election because on some social issues, he's a lot stronger than Trump. But if he's, and if he's losing it badly enough, it probably would cost him it. Gotcha. Aaron, let's come to you. How can the Democrats... Let's say that the economy is important. And I know that the way that Logan phrased it, that the Democrats are winning in various other areas uh, policy-wise. But the economy is incredibly important. That is the first thing that uh, voters think about generally. Not always, but generally. So how can the Democrats uh, reframe the economic debate? Is there a way that they can actually convince your, let's say, your skeptical voter is somebody who is not necessarily against voting for Biden, but thinks, should I vote for Biden, that actually the country is doing well? The first thing is that the facts truly are on their side. Inflation is dramatically down. It's lower than projections. It's lower than comparable countries around the world. Um, unemployment has stayed really low. And while everyone was saying that there was going to need to be pain for inflation to come under control, what's actually happened is that pretty much everyone stayed employed or essentially the full employment and wages have been going up faster than inflation um, for most of this year. Um, that's particularly true for people who are further down the wage scale. The good news is that the arrows are all pointing in the right direction for the Democrats. Um, as Logan was saying, that doesn't necessarily mean that people feel that, right? You still look at the number, the sort of the absolute number of the price of things, and it is higher. And over the course of this kind of pandemic econ or post-pandemic economy, people are rightfully understanding that their economic situation is somewhat worse than it was before the pandemic, which is to be expected, but it's a little bit like telling people to eat their vegetables. They might do it, but they're not necessarily going to love it. One of the mistakes that I think the Democrats are making in trying to pitch their success is that they're really focused on the abstract numbers that I was just talking about and not nearly enough on the direct benefits that people could also be looking at. It's a fact that most people have seen their wages go up. They should be talking about that. That's something that's tangible, that's real, that people are absolutely feeling. Um, they should talk about the fact that most people are employed. And a lot of people who are unemployed for the right reasons, they're looking for a better job. 
and they're optimistic that their job prospects are good. So they need to focus more on the tangible benefits when they're talking about these kitchen table issues and less about CPI and um, various other economic metrics that while are, they're important, people don't eat dinner with their family and say, wow, I can't believe those GDP numbers. Like what a great time it is to live in America. So they, they've just got to get practical. All right, Denise, you're going to tell us exactly how the Democrats are going to get practical. But let's go through some of these metrics. Record manufacturing investment. We have, and as Aram said, not only is it steady jobs growth, but as Aram said, low in unemployment. The monthly job gains averaged 232,000 in 2023. Uh, That's significant. And the unemployment rate has stayed under 4% for 22 months, the longest streak in over 50 years. These are really major accomplishments. Is it because America is just so divided politically that the image of this elderly man who bit doddery, stumbles over his words, that is just a much more powerful narrative than the fact that for most people, 2023 economically in America was good. How do you square that? Aram was right. I think that for a long time, these kind of esoteric metrics that we use when we talk about the economy have been very disconnected with the bread and butter kitchen table issues that people tackle. Listen, this is where people live. Healthcare, housing, student loans. People do not feel good about those three categories, right? These are the things that are crushing Childcare, I would also add, is another one. Those things are going up and they're crushing the middle class. That's just, that could say a whole lot of words, but that's really where we are. And I also think we have not done a really good job of structuring the narrative in reality. We just got out of an economy-crushing pandemic and everybody expects the light switch to just turn back on. We need to, I think, discuss economic growth relative to where we have been and also compare and contrast, juxtapose it against the world. The fact that we're doing better than um, a lot of other countries. And that's because of these efforts. I don't know if that story, that narrative is being communicated. But even as you say that, you have to be careful not to say it like, we're winning, we're number one. I think you have to say it like, we we squeaked out. We're continuing to work. Like you need somebody at the helm that is skilled in getting us through a, a crisis. We we don't really talk about it that way. We don't talk about it as survival of a challenge of overcoming a true difficulty. We talk about it in glossy terms. Look what I did when people are paying too much for eggs and they're paying more for childcare than they are for their mortgage. Like it, we have to make it make sense. The other piece of this that I think we don't talk about enough is the fact that corporate America, businesses are taking advantage of the inflation talk to price gouge. I think that they're, the, as the pressures go down in the economy in, in terms of their purchasing power, they're not passing those discounts on to the consumer. They're just using the environment, and I would say the political environment, to keep prices high. I think we should also talk a little bit more about that. 
Uh, that that is a, a stunning point, and it's something which many people are talking about in the UK, and that mo- most definitely our energy companies took advantage over the winter before last over energy prices increases that they increased them because the pro- the price of energy went up, and when the price of energy went down, they kept the increases right there because they said then they were wrapped by inflationary pressures, even though their, their prime costs actually went down. Stunning point. Z, you are helping candidates or about to start helping candidates win their seats all over the United States. What's your economic messaging for prospective Democratic candidates? Because I'm presuming that when they knock in on those doors and those doors get opened, they're there saying, good news, Biden's done so well. Of course, you're going to vote Democrat. In terms of framing that economic message, what do you tell your candidates that they should be saying on the doorstep to Americans who are sceptical about the strength of the American economy? Yeah, no, I I wish that was the reaction when we got to the doors, but unfortunately, that is not at all the reaction. And so it really depends on where they're at, right? But for the most part, I think it's really important, like what we were all just, what everybody had just mentioned about not using these stats, because clearly the stats are in Biden's favor. There is no and ifs or buts about that. But that doesn't mean that's going to resonate with working class families, because the reality is as well is that we have to think about that. And this is something we actually talk about at higher levels of office when we have federal candidates is what did Biden inherit? Right. Biden inherited four years of BS from Trump. Right. And the fact that Trump put our country into what was it? They said it was between seven point four and eight two trillion in debt. And not to mention that he didn't actually accomplish any of the things that he said he was going to accomplish. In fact, the one thing that he did say that he was going to do that would actually help everybody was the infrastructure bill, which he didn't even do. Biden, in fact, passed the infrastructure bill. And as of right now, I believe that his stats are somewhere between, what, 2.9 and 4.8 trillion, less than half of what Trump spent. And he was able to do that. And so talking about that to working class families, I think, is really important about our crumbling infrastructure. Also about the fact that Biden and the Democrats have been doing everything that they can to make sure that all of the money isn't going to the corporations, because that was what we Denise had just mentioned, right, was that the corporations have been getting a huge, incredible tax, not paying anything in taxes. So, yeah, no, I think what we really need to do is just make sure that when we're talking to working class families that we're using these statistics, one, making them understand where Biden has actually what he inherited from Trump, but also looking towards the future of how it's going to help them. Yes, it might not be helpful for you right this second, but we also have to consider what do we need to do to make progress in this country? And I think we could talk about a whole lot of things. Yeah, to build off of of what Z is saying, I think there's a long trend in American history, and this probably goes true outside of America too. Voters are willing to cut politicians and leaders a break as long as they think they care and they're making some progress and they believe they're going to continue to do that work going forward. So I think that's the thing, right? If you look at FDR, for example, America was still in the midst of the Great Depression for a long time while he was president, the only president in American history to be elected to four terms, let alone three. And he was fantastic, probably the best ever at letting people know with his fireside chats on the radio, like what was he doing to make their lives better and the progress he had. And so that's something Biden has struggled with, right? There are a lot more people, especially younger folks that know about one pipeline Biden approved in Alaska than know, for example, that Biden passed the biggest climate change bill in American history to lower emissions and empower 
solar energy across the country. Like they've had a lot of trouble of getting their getting their achievements out there. And you're not going to win an election by just saying, "Hey, here are all the things you're doing this late in the game," right? But if you can say, "Hey, I know these are the concerns. This is the work I've done. Here's what my opponent's going to do. That's going to push it in the other direction. And here's what I'm going to be able to do if you give me four years. And if you do that effectively enough, not that this is easy, that you can present it in a clear, consistent, and coherent campaign that the American people have an understanding of what four more years for your of a Biden term will do for them and what they might lose from the Democrat perspective if Donald Trump wins for four in, and has fought four more years instead, that's how you're going to be able to win. You just have to make it tangible for people. So I don't think people really understand what Biden's done at this point or what he'll be able to do for four years. But hey, he has a campaign to fix that now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Aaron, I wonder if the one of the problems isn't as fundamental as this, that if you say to people we're going to give you a tax cut and then they get the tax cut and then they're looking their their wage bill and they're now taking home more money than they used to before, that is something incredibly tangible as opposed to, let's say, we've made historic gains with women and black workers or we have improved consumer sentiment. If I've been taking home $3,500 a month, and then all of a sudden I'm taking home 3750 I understand that. Is that really at the, one of the things which is so hard for people to understand about the increased economic vibrance of the American economy? Because it's complex, whereas a tax cut's pretty simple. I think you're still thinking about this with the old rules, if that makes sense. If this were 10, 20, 30 years ago... That might be how people would look at politics. But I don't think that the general malaise that's defined American politics in recent times went away. If anything, it deepened during the pandemic. The division deepened, the kind of macro issues that people are really paying attention to when it comes to politics haven't fundamentally changed. And a a handful of percentage points here or there isn't going to undermine the fundamental unfairness of the economy, for example, 
right? It's still a fact that three in five Americans are a single thousand dollar emergency away from being insolvent. So even if the economy has, the sort of economic performance has been impressive, if you're still living on the edge, you're still living on the edge and you're not going to feel good about the economy in any way, shape or form because you're worried that your your kid might fall and break their arm and you're going to have to pay the deductible to get them their bones set and where you're going to have someone else hit your car and your car is not going to work and you're going to have to figure out how to get to work or child care and all the things that Denise said are those are key issues and until that part of American um, society and life is addressed I don't think that these sort of old school positive indicators of, of economic performance are really going to land people I think that they're going to continue to feel like the system overall isn't really in their favor. And I think that this is uh, a hangover of American neoliberal policy where you give the poor just enough to make it and it's not working. And if you see some of the same sort of political movements in Europe where you have a much higher floor, there's a much stronger social safety net, then you put yourself in the shoes of an American where there's much less of a social safety net and you know that you're living on the edge and people in your life who go who go over that edge. And maybe you also have to help take care of them. I, I have that in my life. I'm lucky enough to not be one of those three and five. But let me tell you, I got plenty of the three and five in my life and there's people I've kept off the street in the last month. And as long as that's the reality that we're all living through, if you're not speaking to that deeper challenge of how our society is structured, I don't know how far it's going to get you. And for all his failings, that is one thing that Trump has done a hell of a lot better than Democrats is he's at least pointed at the pain, even if he doesn't have a single solution or any interest in solving the problem. But politics, feeling people's pain can get you a long way. And I think Democrats would be wise to recognize that. Amen. Yeah, that's such a fantastic point. And this is the place where Biden's age shows up. I think there's a feeling that he's being hidden away. He's not hitting the ground with the message that I've got you. I have a plan. We're going to straighten this out. We're going to fix this. I'm thinking that we have a we need to tackle the fact that these hedge funds are buying up all the starter homes. We need to address some of these issues that people feel right? They see homelessness exploding. Meanwhile, they're being told the economy is doing great. Like they, we have to make sure that we're talking about what people are feeling, not just patting ourselves on the back because we've made progress. Progress is a relative term, right? And I don't hear enough sensitivity. The young people in my life, I have a, a lot of young interns in my business. The young people in my life are shattered by the failure to address student loans in a substantive way. They're shattered by it. They're shattered. They are not over it. And the feeling that people who benefited from the GI Bill, people who benefited, who the middle class was created using governmental support, they perceive, and they unfortunately, I, I think they ascribe that whole generation as being a block to them advancing economically. So it makes the it makes all of the news go through a filter of suffering and struggle and challenge 
that if you don't speak to it, I don't care what the Dow Jones is doing. Goodness, I'm saying amen again to that, sister. It's two amens in, in one episode. Zeke, the, the last word is going to be yours on this topic. And I really do take Aaron's critique that fundamentally and structurally things are broken. And really, these economic figures are great in and of themselves, but they're not addressing fundamental issues. As, as, as Aaron said, um, Americans are like $1,000 away from insolvency. Um, as Denise uh, highlighted, student debt forgiveness, partially that was uh, promised by Biden, and then that was a brouhaha uh, politically. But if we put those substantive issues to one side just for now, just trying to understand this messaging and its lack of being able to be appreciated, at least in the media, is one of the reasons why Americans aren't aware that the economy is at least ticked up somewhat because the other side are talking about it. They are talking about the border. They are talking about other things other than these kind of checkbook issues of which marginally Americans have been doing better. If Fox, One America, et al. are not talking about the American economy and it doing well, ditto, it doesn't feel like things are substantially better. Is that one of the issues around messaging on economic well-being? Absolutely. Absolutely. And two years ago, if you asked me this question, I would tell you negative campaign don't work. There's no point in doing them. We need to stick to talking about what we have done while we're in office and talk about those pieces, right? There's no use in fear tactics. I've completely switched. I've done a complete 180 on this because the reality is that the Republicans are winning because they're using fear tactic messaging. And We can sit up here all we want and talk about how we're the good guys. That's not going to matter anymore. We need to change tactics now. Now that democracy is on the line, we can't go into the night because the reality is that the way that it's looking right now is that Biden's path to victory is getting slimmer and slimmer. And we're going to talk about this a little bit with the Colorado thing when we go into that. But to be honest, we do not have time to be trying to play the good guy anymore. We need to start talking about the reality of the situation. And the reality of the situation is that is the economy as good as it could be right now? Probably not. Are middle class people hurting? Yes, they are. But also things could get a hell of a lot worse very quickly. And some of those ways is that Republicans are going to do have begun and will continue to do everything they can to make sure that Medicare and Social Security are taken away from people. And that messaging needs to be hammered into the over 45 folks. It has to. Now you're taking a situation of yeah, I have less money in my pocket to all that time I've worked in my life is not even going to matter because I'm not even going to have access to Medicare or Social Security. They have to start talking about the fact that Trump is a dictator. He uses messaging that is very similar to the messaging that Hitler used, and that is not by accident. His plan is to make sure that he never leaves office and we will just have a dynasty or we will continue to have his pick for essentially forever, right? He could change laws where we don't even have elections anymore. Like there is that power for that to happen. And unless folks want this country to turn into a dictatorship in the next four to eight years, 
we need to start telling people that's what's on the line. We know Biden is not the best pick. We get it. <laughs> we could have a lot better picks out there, right? But the reality is that right now he's the presumed Democratic nominee. And so we need to start using those fear tactics because they're not just fear tactics that are out of nowhere. These are real things that are going to happen if people decide to vote for Trump. And the first people it's going to affect are the majority of his base, the folks that are struggling, right? Trump has a huge sea of folks that are voting for him that are illegal immigrants, Mexican illegal immigrants. We just saw this week that his stats with Mexican immigrants, particularly in Texas near El Paso, has skyrocketed, almost double. Those are the very first people that these laws are going to affect. So we have to hammer in that messaging. Z, you've managed to move us on to the next topic, and we still do <laughs> the first topic. The legal ruling that could keep Donald Trump off Colorado's primary ballot looming large on the campaign trail, with his Republican rivals defending the man they hope to defeat. Just because these liberal justices don't like him, they want to take him off the ballot, that's not a democracy. Former Attorney General Bill Barr, who has been critical of Mr. Trump, questioning the legal merits of the case, arguing it will work to his former boss's advantage. He uh, feeds on grievance, just like a fire feeds on oxygen, and this is going to end up as a grievance that helps him. At issue in Colorado, Mr. Trump's role in the January 6th attack on the Capitol, with the Colorado Supreme Court citing his own words as evidence of inciting an insurrection. We fight like hell, and if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. The Trump campaign has vowed to swiftly appeal the Colorado case. And cases like the one in Colorado have faced an uphill battle. Litigation and appeals are pending in more than a dozen states, with lower courts already rejecting some of those cases. And efforts to ban Trump from the ballot have not succeeded in the past. Mr. Trump also faces more than 90 charges in four separate criminal cases, including in Washington, where the special counsel has asked the Supreme Court to weigh in on the issue of whether the former president has immunity for his efforts to challenge the 2020 election results. Now, the nation's highest court could have to rule on whether Mr. Trump is even eligible to run, all before the first primary votes are cast. In a groundbreaking decision, the Colorado Supreme Court ruled former President Donald Trump ineligible for the state's Republican primary ballot under a constitutional clause against officials involved in insurrection or rebellion. Uh, this ruling could impact Trump's chances in the general election. Trump intends to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, which has delayed the ruling's effect until January 4th, 2024. The case, a test for the 14th Amendment, stems from Trump's alleged role in the Capitol right on January the 6th. While Trump's campaign criticizes the decision as being undemocratic, the Biden campaign has not commented. The outcome contrasts with other states' responses and sets a precedent for Trump's eligibility in future elections. Z, I think it's somewhat marked that Biden and leading Democrats aren't exactly jumping up and down and saying this is great. Considering what you just said about the fact that uh, Trump could well be the harbinger for the, for the end of American democracy, so while the liberal watchdog group in Colorado has a case to celebrate. Why do you think the response is muted from many Democratic politicians? I think that they realize that this is actually not great because the reality of the situation is that there's only about 
10, maybe arguably 12 states that actually matter moving forward. We know most of them. We could rattle them off, but all the swing states, essentially, right? Or the purple states, one would say. And what this is doing, Colorado is voting for Biden anyway, right? So this is not really all this has done is honestly given Trump an early Christmas gift because anytime anything happens to Trump like this, what happens? His ratings skyrocket up, right? Gets arrested, skyrocket up. Why? Because there's that narrative around, oh, the I'm trumping the underdog. I think Aram had mentioned that and how he speaks to the working class struggle, even though it's completely fake, right? And that we know that it's completely fake. But the reality is that this is only helping to prove their case that Oh, because Trump's an outsider, this is happening. Because he's an underdog, this is happening. And so all it's going to do, honestly, is help help him. And I think that the Democratic politicians, at least, who, and the operatives understand that. And so I think that moving forward, sure, it might, uh, quote unquote, set a precedent. Who knows what could happen in other states? But to be honest, if it's not one of those 10 to 12 states, I think it's only going to help Trump. I want to come to you, uh, Logan. What polling do we have around Republicans saying that if Trump is convicted of one of these many kind of trials and whatever that he's going through, that they would actively vote against him? And then with your best pollster hat on, because Z talked about this, and this is the reason why so many Democrats are worried about this. This is invariably going to give him a little bit of, of a boost in the polls, isn't it? He's somebody who thrives on grievance. Everybody's always out to get him. And this is proof positive. I, I would say that it will help him in the GOP primary to a degree in theory. Although I think he's already there. He's already got that type of support. I, it's possible. There's a lot of other points I agree with you on. But on this one, we heard that a lot in 2022 every time Donald Trump had something else, some other legal issue, like when they went in Mar-a-Lago to search for documents, when he was indicted, et cetera. I've never seen him get a polling boost in the general lecture in the immediate aftermath. So I'm skeptical that this is going to give him a big boost. I think a lot of people see that Donald Trump did try to overturn the election. If you don't think that, you're probably voting for him anyway. And whenever they agree or disagree with the judges, I think there's going to be real disagreement on that if people have an opinion about it at all. But as much as Donald Trump may not want Americans to be able to understand this, most Americans do understand that Joe Biden is not one of the justices in Colorado making that decision. And yeah, he'll have some of his base supporters be really angry and seeing a connection, but I don't think the average voter is persuadable is going to be thinking along those lines. Now to get to your other question, what happens if he's convicted? We only have a handful of polls nationally, but it does make a difference when you ask people under that consideration. Trump is now taking the lead. So Democrats should be nervous in taking this election seriously and getting involved early if they uh, view it as existential stakes. Donald Trump is up by 1.4% in the head-to-head polling, a little better than it was a week or two ago. But if he is convicted, voters then say that they would prefer Biden by 4.4%. So we're talking about a 6% net shift towards Joe Biden. And when you look at it on a state by level, in the Electoral College, Donald Trump is now leading 301 electoral votes to 235 if we look at state polling averages. Some of these are very narrow, but still a lead for him nonetheless. If he's convicted, then Biden has a lead 258 to 125. Now, you probably noticed I'm missing a lot of electoral votes in that second one. This is the average I run in races to the White House. Basically, I'm not going to include swing states that don't have any polling. I'm only going to include states that are like very safe red or very safe blue in that. 
So again, the difference is 258 to 125. If he's convicted, you need 270 to win. So in theory, Biden would be in good position. A lot of that's being carried by one pollster, New York Times, who showed a much bigger difference than other people did, losing Nevada easily in their poll irregularly, winning Nevada about 15 points if Trump's convicted, right? So their read is that it makes a massive difference. So some pollsters are showing it makes like a 4 or 5% swing. New York Times showed it made like a 20% swing. We'll see what it actually is once we get a little more pollsters to weigh in on this. You get a little bit more screwy numbers or something like this because pollsters are asking the question differently. Some are saying, well, how would you change your vote if Trump goes to jail? How Some of them are saying if Trump's convicted and they might mention different cases specifically. So framing makes a huge difference in this. Aaron, I'm going to come to you before I go to Denise. This is unprecedented, isn't it? This political judicial crossover. And it's going to present somewhat of a novel problem for America that you have this political figure and then you have the the overlap of the Supreme Court. This feels odd, doesn't it? It does feel odd. I think it's a little bit like if you had a heavyweight championship bout and on the way into the ring, the referee decided that the shorts that one of the boxers was wearing weren't up to regulation. Wait a minute. Is this the fight? No, it's not the fight. Does this really matter? Probably not. Because what inevitably is going to happen is that the Supreme Court, which has had no hesitation to be political, certainly since it went to a 6-3 majority for the conservatives, there's no way that this is going to be up There's a whole bunch of legal maneuvers that they have to essentially eliminate any problems that this presents for them, right? They're not even likely to rule on whether or not he engaged in an insurrection. They're probably going to just find some way to ensure that he stays on the ballot and that no other states can take him off. I think that's how most people feel, like this isn't really going to matter. And I think that's true. I feel that way. In fact, I think pretty much everything that we're talking about right now isn't going to matter. And I say that because things that happen in December, the year before an election, almost never matter. It's very rare for any of them to make any difference whatsoever. And let's keep in mind, this president is about to go to trial, criminal trial, in multiple places. We know for a fact that a ton of witnesses and co-conspirators have pled guilty and have had enough on the man that they've been given very minor sentences. That's all going to matter far more than this, right? There's going to be debates. There's going to be policy discussions. There's going to be either economic improvement or degradation. Some Lots of other things are going to happen. And so this kind of feels like a really interesting historical footnote. And while it's meaningful that a court has ruled that he engaged in insurrection and did so under an amendment to the Constitution that was written to punish the Confederate traitors in the Civil War, I don't think it's going to carry a lot of weight. And I think particularly that's the case because it sounds like we're going to know the answer about what SCOTUS is going to do, the Supreme Court is going to do by January 4th. And if that's indeed the case, this is going to be the most buried big story of all time because it happened right before Christmas and it's going to be over by the time people go back to school and work in the new year. 
Denise, last word for you on this. But as Aaron has kind of pointed out, this is the 14th Amendment. And according to my notes, this is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment that Trump is in violation of, according to the Colorado court. Even though it feels like it's something and then nothing at, at, at the same time, to paraphrase Mr. Fisher here, you do also feel that if Barack Obama was pilloried because apparently he wasn't even born in the United States, and then you have a man who I think it's incontrovertible that he actually did exhort people to go and storm the capital and in effect to rip up the constitution wanted to subvert the lawful change of government that the this 14th amendment subsection 3 is a bust isn't it it do, it just doesn't matter you can say the most vile things about america you can claim to uphold the constitution when you're inaugurated as president but actually whilst you're still president tell people to run into run into the Capitol building and go hang hang Mike Pence. Doesn't really matter, does it? Why do we even have a constitution in your country if you're not even going to live by your own rules? I- I'm British. We don't have one. Yeah, I'm going to tell you, this whole thing makes me really sad. And I know when you're a pundit, you're not supposed to be sad about things. You're supposed to be angry, fired up. But no, this actually makes me sad because we all watched it. We watched it on television. We watched it happening live. And literally, we do not have the capacity to hold him accountable. That's really where we are. So many people at the time said, don't prosecute him. Don't indict him for this. The country can't, just let the country heal. Let us move past it. And the window that we should have held him accountable We didn't. So this feels too little too late. It feels small and partisan instead of principled. And the the bottom line is, I can't even believe I'm getting ready to say this, but I think that um, I'm starting to come to the realization that Trump is not the problem. I ask myself the question, is Trump an aberration or is he an avatar? And the truth is, we have a cadre of citizenry in our country that believes it doesn't matter if you go into the Capitol building and smear feces on the wall. It doesn't matter if you put a gallows to hang the vice president to stop the transfer of power. That's our problem. And we really don't have a remedy for it. And I fear I fear that Joe Biden is not up to addressing that problem, which to me is the real issue that we have. Do we care about our democratic institutions? What do we want them to look like? Who do we want our leaders to be? And what kind of characteristics do we want them to have? I think that we we literally have jumped the shark. And so you're right. The question is a good question. What's the point of having um, the Constitution if we're not going to abide by it? I've heard people say things that are so funny to me. This is an archaic amendment that we don't have to pay attention to. Second Amendment people who think they should have an Uzi, a cannon, and a blowtorch are now explaining to me that an insurrection um, code in the uh, Constitution is irrelevant. I just feel like the, the world is upside down. 
And it's because we didn't have moral clarity right after it happened. I keep thinking of comments made by Republican Fred McCarthy and Mitch McConnell. But that's what the moment it happened, they were all the right things, didn't they? All the right things. And we did not hold them to it. We should have addressed it at the time. And we just didn't. We didn't have the courage because we wanted um, peace over justice. And whenever you make that choice of choosing peace over justice, it never really seems to work out. So now, you know, we've, we've churned and, and, and clunked along. We've come to this solution that, to me, would have been a viable solution if we did it a couple years ago. It feels right now heavy handed and it feels it feels partisan and it feels small. Right. It feels like you can't win on your ideas. So you're pencil whipping him. I don't want him to be pencil whipped. I want us to win on the ideas. And so the whole thing makes me sad. Yeah, there were 2022 was really the time to make this case because there were a lot of people running who were out January 6th. That's when you test it and you build a legal foundation doing it in 2024 with the first person being the president in a precedent obsessed Supreme Court. That's just how the court operates. You had to have someone else in the last hundred years. That'd probably be true if it was a 6-3 Democrat appointed judge, let alone 6-3 the other way. Now, I don't think just because they're Republican, even though they're an incredibly conservative court, they've ruled, I was just in the New York Times, yeah, this, they have ruled against the Trump administration when he was president more than they've ruled against any just any president since Roosevelt, largely because the Trump administration wasn't great at coloring within the law when it came to executing policy or overturning elections. But I don't think it's necessarily shooing for these other cases that they're always going to back him because some of these might get escalated to the highest level. I think there's also a little bit of like we've been through so many seasons of this show. We watched them in the golden escalator and then we were shocked at the end of season three when he won the presidency and we've come all this way and we can't end like this. This can't possibly be the ending to this show. It's got to be bigger than that. The guy's either has to get hauled off to prison for any one or multiple of the 91 crimes he's been indicted for and is currently waiting trial on, right? That's one way this could end. Two, he could lose for a second time and be one of the only presidential nominees ever to lose twice. And three, he could win. That's the only three ways that this story, I feel like it can end. Because there's a reckoning that has to happen. Right. There's a there's an internal conflict within the US that can only be resolved in one of those three ways. And to simply take him off the ballot, I think would actually take this whole story and MAGA movement into a direction that's actually more unthinkable than any of those three. I think that it would undermine democracy more than almost any other single thing that could happen because you'd be taking the decision out of the hands of the voters. And even as someone who thinks that he is guilty of insurrection, is guilty of at least most of the 91 crimes that he's charged with, I don't want to see it go down this way. I don't want to see him removed from the ballot. I want to see him lose in court. I want to see him lose in politics. I don't want to see him lose on a technicality. Right? This is the big battle. You can't just disqualify him. It's just, Yeah. It's too anticlimactic. Yeah, he's a he's an idea at this point. He's not a man. And you can't just pull him out of play. The idea is still there. The idea still stands. And 
That's the problem. And we're not speaking to that. We're not telling people a story that they are excited to choose. We're just, like I said, pencil whipping. And I don't think that's sustainable. We talk a lot about the country being divided and people being at odds. What's our effort to reconcile that? What are we doing to address that? I I don't know that we're doing that work, right? This feels like politicking. And in a stage of our country where there's so much uncertainty, when we talked about the economy earlier, we talked about how people feel unsafe and unstable. We didn't even talk about AI and how people feel like everything is hanging by a string and they feel their power and their confidence slipping away in our their trust of government. Like we have to win on ideas. We have to put forth something better, a better alternative, not just ugly meeting ugly. I, I just don't think that's how this is going to work. I just say one final thing on this just because of what this actual podcast is. It blew my mind when I watched Boris Johnson just kind of exit stage left. Wait, you can do that? He had this somewhat minor scandal about drinking during the pandemic and he just disappears. (laughs) This is the least American thing I can possibly imagine. We just don't do that. And part of it, it, part of the reason why that seems so unlikely to an American right now is that we're having this massive battle over principles. We're completely unmoored and we're trying to figure out what we're going to re-anchor to. Whereas I think in, in the UK, there's still something, whether it's tradition or something else, that has that country far more connected to something that's deeper and less malleable. We need to figure out who we are, right? We're adolescents who have hopefully hit a bottom that we're about to rebound from, but we'll see. And I think that's a really different, a big difference between our two countries right now. Yeah. And tying on the economy back to this, I think Biden is probably going to lose the economic message on this. It's a question of how much I think his pathway to victory. I, I could be wrong about that, right? Maybe in a year, it's about to look dumb. I, I think his pathway is, and I think Biden is planning on this, is this, he's trying to make this a freedom, liberty, democracy election. And that is about Trump trying to overturn the last election, but it's also about protecting fundamental civil rights like the right to an abortion. And I think he has a strong case to be made there. And perhaps to a degree, they're keeping their powder dry because these narratives don't last forever. But that is a very strong narrative to make that could crescendo well once these cases are going into play. But it was a narrative that worked incredibly well for Democrats in 2022 against people that threatened a lot less, that were a lot less responsible for what happened in 2020 in the effort to overturn. When it tore apart Pennsylvania governor candidate Doug Mastriano, it tore apart Carrie Lake, it tore apart J.R. Majewski, a Republican district in Ohio. This stuff has real power. Now, I will admit Trump's people's view of Trump is a lot more solid than these other guys, but he is at the center of all of this, and he is frequently, especially when it comes to his tweets or whatever, their truths, he's threatening a hell of a lot worse than he did last time around. He's talking about going after his opponents with political prosecution. He talks about putting journalists in jail, t- jokes about raping, about them getting raped in prison, using the force of the state in a way that it hasn't been used in America, and frankly, has rarely even been threatened. And I think that's going to be scary for people as that gets more of a focal point. And um, if that is what people are voting on, if that is front and center of mind, 
Time will tell if I'm right about this, but I think America is above all else a country that's focused on freedom and liberty. That is a central American value. And I think if people feel that it's threatened, they want the choice to choose not just this election, but for the next 50 elections going forward. And that's the case I think Biden can make and win on. But time will tell if that's true. I got a little bit of a spoiler on that one. They better end this war. They better end it quick. And they better get on the other side of this story because the story has been Trump is the big evil bad ogre and Uncle Joe is the kind, loving grandfather that everybody wants to have. And the longer people have videos piped of Palestinian children blown to bits with American bombs, that narrative is not going to hang anymore. That's what I'm hearing in the ether from young people of, oh, so they're both bad guys. And if that narrative swings too much further, I I don't see how he wins. I think that's why Biden's polling has dropped. Unpopular opinion, but I think that's probably because a lot of people are doing what I'm doing are a little older and don't know as many younger people. And that isn't necessarily how the rest of America feels about it. But people under 30, I think they do feel that way. Yeah, it, it, it is It is noticeable, not just in, in America, but in Britain, and I'm going to say the rest of the world, how public opinion is so remarkably shifted on Israel and uh, Palestine conflict from that initial revulsion of what Hamas did to the way that Israel is prosecuting this war and the very fact that America is trying to get wording through the UN that it can abstain on a cessation um, should give the Israeli government massive pause for thought. If its biggest economic and military supporter historically wants to abstain because it's worried um, about the level of destruction going on in Gaza that needs to give Netanyahu and that party massive pause for thought but just just to end up I love the fact that I think three of you all said I'm just gonna have for one last word and they all start you all try to outdo each other by having the last word Logan was like nah, I'm gonna have the last word now nah, Aaron's I'm gonna have the last word but anyway, this is, this is wonderful. And I could just kick back and just listen to you all have the last word. One last word from me. When it comes to American politicians and exiting stage left, if there is a scandal, Nixon did just disappear. Yes, Ford pardoned him about 80 months. What wasn't even 80 months. It was immediately, wasn't it? Immediately pardoned him. But considering... Watergate was so big that we put gate on the end of any kind of scandal now, whatever. He did exit stage left and he disappeared. But anyway, who am I but a student of history, good people? I'm also the host of the Mid-Atlantic Podcast. Now is the time when I say to my good friends, what have you been up to in the last seven days and how can people catch up with you? Denise Hamilton, I don't want to hear about wrapping presents for Christmas, none of that stuff. What have you been doing in the last seven days? I'm nesting. I'm resting. I'm collecting myself. My book hits the streets February 6th, 2024, and I'll be on tour. And I am taking advantage of this downtime and resting, watching bad TV, eating terrible food that's not good for me. I'm doing all of the things that one is not yet. I know. You're getting yourself Christmas ready by eating bad food. I'm getting myself ready for a marathon of book selling. Oh, <laughs> so, oh 
I am. I'm just having a good time and just resting and relaxing and cleaning up and purging and just getting ready to hit the ground running. So I'm excited. Wait a minute. I I didn't understand. You're purging by eating lots of bad food. I'm purging clothes I don't like, old makeup, getting ready to get on tour. um, I bought some new sneakers. (laughs) I'm doing all the things that one needs. When you're getting ready to do something big, I'm taking advantage of the downtime. So it's hard chilling over here. Hard chilling and relaxing. Nice. I like that. Hard chilling. Mr. Ref, when was the last time you hard chilled? (laughs) I'm doing the opposite. And I'm glad to hear that Denise Denise is taking it easy because I'm over here plotting to take over the world. And I need her to not get in the way of my plans. I'm actually in the midst of launching a political AI startup, which I won't say too much about right now, but very exciting stuff. So it's an interesting mix of tech and politics and hopefully the future. So we'll see how that goes. But that means that I'm trying to do as much work as possible by the, while the rest of you are sleeping and opening presents and spending time with their family. Also, I'm with my, my in-laws which is delightful. Ah, so. And now I know, I'm not going to ask you where people can catch up beyond the socials because you famously like to keep it dark on, on social media. But Denise, it's real life. You didn't give anybody your social handles or anything like that. No, Aram's the dark one, not you. <laughs> At official DHAM in all of the places. And if you want to check out the book, it's indivisiblenow.com. Mm-hmm. Z, Cohen Sanchez, what have you been up to in the last seven days? We are fundraising hard for our 2024 candidates right now because we have a lot of uphill battles in a lot of states that we need to be supporting Biden in. We have a lot of local candidates that need this support. So if anybody is willing to volunteer, help in canvassing, if you want to work in politics, please give me a call. And just remind us of the, uh, the URL, which they can click on, give you a call. Yes, please. Go to Soul Strategies. That's S-O-L-E, like the soul of your shoe, dot com. You can find us on all social media platforms. And please message us if you want to get involved, because there's more than enough, plenty of work to do for the upcoming season. Now, uh, Mr. Phillips, I know you're up with your folks right now. You're going to have this massive festive holiday. You're going to eat lots of turkey and do whatever you people do up in, in Connecticut. Right. <laughs> Apart from all of that. Right. That's the next seven days what have you been doing in the preceding seven days i'll tell you what i'm doing in the next hour is i am going to take indivisible.org was it and uh, pre-ordering denise hamilton's book indivisiblenow.com indivisiblenow.com okay so i'm doing that first but what i've been doing the last seven days is two things first building the presidential forecast and going a lot to trying to find out some find some really hard to find data from the like 1950s and 60s because I backtest my stuff like crazy to make it accurate as possible so hopefully I'll be out in January and then something you've already done is if you have been following and I know you have especially if you're American the uh, drama of the George Santos saga and you're curious about what comes next I now launched a forecast for George Santos's district on race to the WH which is where I run and Democrats need five seats to pick up the house this could be one of the five right here before they even get to the election that will be i believe in early february and they got a good shot at that i think they're favored they got a congressman who beat santos badly a few years ago long island appears to have lurked a little to the right so we'll see what happens there nice 
you know what, Logan? I sh- I-, I know that I owe you a telephone call or two, right? The fact that you're even on this podcast, that you- you're a big heart because I didn't make our meeting. Friend, please forgive me. And on that note, with me shamefaced, I'm going to bid you all adieu. Au revoir, tatty bye, and tarara bit, as we say in Birmingham. This has been Mid-Atlantic dealing with my, dealing with the second country that I call home, the United States, and the politics of the week, which has been the uptick in the American economy, and when will Americans realise, and why don't they realise, and I think the panel gave us a few really good answers to the reason why structurally neoliberalism doesn't work. People can't feel marginal benefits, right? We need to, dare I say, blow the thing up and start again, but in a nice constructive way of blowing things up. And we talked about the last president, Donald Trump, and what is a fair, reasonable way for him to exit stage left. Maybe us Brits do it right? I don't know. That sounds very kumbaya, which is my way, but it's also my way to wrap up podcasts. And I'm going to do that right now by saying, ta-ra, toodaloo, goodbye. Send me an email at royful.com. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.